Stanford University. Director of the Stanford Humanities Center, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you here to for, for the um, uh, tribute to Bliss Carnacan on the occasion of the Bliss Carnacan Lecture this April. We are here to honor Bliss, uh, the second director of the center from 1985 to 1991. This is the 17th lecture in Bliss's honor since the series was established in 1992. Um, Bliss is the um, Richard W. Lyman, Professor of the Humanities Emeritus, and has been a member of Stanford's English Department since 1960. His research and writing have focused on 18th century literature in its cultural and historical settings. Other research interests include prison literature, Victorian culture, and American higher education. His most recent book, published in 2008, is Golden Legends, Images of Abyssinia, Samuel Johnson to Bob Marley. Bliss's directorship of the center left a rich legacy. Among many accomplishments was presiding over a $7 million centennial campaign that resulted in the endowment of the directorship by the Anthony P. Meyer family and the successful match of the center's first NEH challenge grant. Uh, we're fortunate Bliss has continued to be a loyal friend and supporter of the center over many years, and we're delighted to have him and Gitta with us today, and I'm very happy to be celebrating him with today's lecture by Professor Felicity Nussbaum. There'll be question and answers uh, to f that will follow the lecture, and you're all invited to a reception afterwards. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce Jonathan Kramnik, uh, who will introduce uh, uh, Professor Nussbaum. Jonathan Kramnik is Associate Professor in the English Department at Rutgers University. He is interested in literature, philosophy, and science, and is the author of Making the English Canon, Print Capitalism and the Cultural Past, 1700-1770, and the recently completed Actions and Causes, The Problems of Agency from Rochester to Richardson. He is a Martha Sutton Weeks Faculty Fellow at the Humanities Center this year. Jonathan. So I'm really delighted to welcome Felicity Nussbaum back to the Humanities, Humanities Center, where she was also a Martha Sutton Weeks Fellow in 1991 and 1992. Felicity is professor of English at UCLA, where she has taught for the past dozen years. Before that, she taught at Syracuse University and the University of Indiana at South Bend. Felicity's many awards and accomplishments would take too long to review today, so I'll mention just a few of them. In addition to a fellowship at the Humanities Center, she has won a Guggenheim, twice been awarded fellowships by the NEH. From 1999 to 2000, she served as the Clark Library Memorial Professor, and from 2006 to 2007, as the President of the American Society of 18th Century Studies. I've ended this much abbreviated list with the 18th century studies presidency because I can think of no better way to describe Felicity's work than to say it has helped define and set the agenda for 18th century studies over the past 25 years. She is the author of five books and the editor of four more. Her early work helped introduce the field to literary theory and to feminism. More recently, she has brought to our attention, and again, really helped to shape concerns that are more post-colonial or transatlantic in their nature. I'm going, to, I'm going to highlight just a few of these works now. I would be surprised if Felicity didn't often hear professors of my generation say that her 1987 anthology, co-edited with Laura Brown, The New 18th Century, Theory, Politics, English Literature, was the book to read in the field when we were in graduate school or were getting our bearings in the profession. But at the risk of repetition, I will say that this volume showed that work in the 18th century could be interesting and fun and innovative, and that it brought a whole set of terms about genre and gender and ideology, for example, into critical discussion and circulation for the first time. 
That collection contained the germs of her next book, The Autobiographical Subject, Gender and Ideology in 18th Century England, which was awarded the 1989 Godshock Prize from the American Society for 18th Century Studies. This prize, mind you, is for Book of the Year and is the highest award bestowed by the organization. Professor Nussbaum spent her Stanford year researching and writing Torrid Zones, a study of sexuality and empire in 18th century England. This book marked a turn in her interests towards the sort of concerns developed in her 2003 collection, The Global 18th Century, and her book of the same year, The Limits of the Human, Fictions of Anomaly, Race, and Gender in the Long 18th Century. Today's talk is drawn from her soon-to-be-published and eagerly awaited for study of actresses and the culture, of, culture and economy of theater in 18th century Britain, entitled Rival Queens. Please join me in welcoming Felicity Nussbaum. Thank you very much. Can you hear me? I, th I should be on mic. Okay, good. Well, I'm delighted to be here. It's wonderful to come back. Um, when I was here before, I was not in this lovely, luxurious place, but rather in Mariposa House. Uh, but it did, as I was just talking with Susan Siebert, uh, it did have its charms. And um, it's a pleasure to be back on the Stanford campus. Thank you very much, Jonathan, for that introduction, that very generous introduction. And I also just want to say a special thank you to Bliss for this lecture um, that uh, in the early days of my career, I was very interested in Confinement and Flight, one of, I think, maybe your first book. And it did inspire me to think that there were interesting and exciting things one could say about the 18th century. So today I'm going to be talking about the invention of celebrity. The 18th century London theater was the center of urban life and the crucible of celebrity, as Stella Tilliard has helpfully described it. This development at the end of the 17th century corresponds uh, to at least three historical shifts. The loss of faith in monarchical divine right, accompanied by increased parliamentary control. The lessening of the hold on printing because of the 1695 Licensing Act that increased the freedom from governmental control. And an emergent public sphere. A free press accompanied by ineffective libel laws encouraged furious scandal mongering at an unprecedented level and created new potential for invading individual privacy. The proliferation of print culture, the emergence of mercantilism, the diminished power of the aristocracy, and an increase in leisure gave rise to a media apparatus that was essential to the emergence of these inordinately powerful and often enticingly mysterious public figures. How then did actors and actresses make themselves into commodities that resembled manufactured products, an almost mystical function in an emergent capitalist society? Stella Tilliard adds to the cultural mix a crucial economic element to show that celebrities' inaugural moments were entangled in the formation of a distinctly private sphere. Celebrity was born at the moment that private life became a tradable public commodity, she writes. Privacy, as some scholars have argued, rather than being valued principally because of its separation from the public sphere, paradoxically increased its value as a result of its exposure in the public realm. The privileging of the ordinary and the consciousness of man's ability to shape himself, John Brewer tells us in his summary of 18th century technologies of the self, had the paradoxical effect both of enhancing a sense of privacy, especially of the corporeal and psychic self, and of providing the grounds on which it could be invaded and policed and remade. It has been said again and again, Allardyce Nicole tells us, that the 18th century was an age not of the author but of the actor. The 18th century has often been regarded as a period when dramatic standards crumbled because of the corrupting influences of popular entertainments, such as the Italian opera, pantomime, and saccharine sentimental drama. Several generations of theater historians have maintained that actors and managers and playwrights, such as Thomas Betterton, John Rich, David Garrick, and Richard Sheridan, dominated history, theater history and criticism. But women's stage presence, linked with the excitement of new genres, provides a counter-narrative to the British theater's alleged degeneration. Star actresses took on public personae that aroused mystery and magic, developing their own signature personality, an individuality seeming to give them mythic agency and volition. 
The celebrated characters they represented appeared to be almost more real than their creators, as actresses became adept at mystifying the commercial nature of theatrical production and of their labor. The emergence of celebrity may be linked then not only to the marketing of privacy, but also I suggest to the unprecedented appearance of real beautiful women, a quotation from Kali Sibber, on stage after the restoration. Rather than the age of the actor, the 18th century might, I suggest, be called more accurately the age of women in the theater, and especially the age of the actress. In my talk today, I want to describe some general aspects of the invention of celebrity, and then offer a case study of a star actress and playwright who was central in inventing that celebrity. These accounts of celebrity that I've just described follow the line of reasoning in Jürgen Habermas's structural transformation of the public sphere, the impact of which persists in spite of intense critique of his ideas. While Habermas defined a bourgeois public sphere in which a consensus of opinion might be formed as typical of modern society, positioned between an intimate domestic sphere and the official domain of the state, others have refined, refined his theories by describing the varied 18th century publics that extend well beyond the state and the print culture that deliberated its actions. In the now familiar argument, Habermas maintained that through a republic of letters and sociability, private people formed a public sphere that prodded the state to become more responsive to civil society. The periodical press and the circulation of its products in public gathering places such as coffee houses, and we must add theaters, were vehicles of this transformation in which private people, including aristocrats and the bourgeoisie, but extending also to apprentices and servants, commingled in public spaces that inspired rational critical debate, but also circulated scandal and gossip. The public and private spheres were, of course, not nearly as distinct as Habermas painted them. Multiple public and private spheres existed, not to speak of the many public and private and private in public gatherings, for example, such as private booths in pubs and coffee houses or curtain theater boxes. The popular and periodical press offered a ready space for debating the relative merits of celebrity actors and actresses. In the heyday of David Garrick's management of Drury Lane Theater, which was from 1747 to 1776, numerically coded charts provided playgoers with comparative ratings of their favorite performers. They offer a fascinating glimpse into the qualities that 18th century theater audiences valued most highly in the actors of both sexes. They reflect enlightenment values in their attempt to codify personal worth. A critical balance of the performers at Drury Lane Theater, which you see here, a broadsheet costing a shilling, printed a table quantifying each actor's figure, grace, and that these are the words that are at the top of the scale. Figure, grace, spirit and ease, sensibility, taste, dignity, manners, expression, pantomime, low and genteel humor, elocution, voice, dress, and noise. None of the actors is assigned a total score, and the anonymous reviewer, leaving the tables blank in a few categories, assigns the numbers somewhat erratically. The actor, Mr. Clough, for example, is granted 16 points for pantomime, but no points in any other category. <laughs> Similarly, a solid 20 points for noise damns Mrs. Bennett, who earns no other grades. Most instructive in regard to the relative merits of actors and actresses is the fact that women players earned the highest rankings of the 41 actors across all the categories, if you total them, which they don't do. While Mrs. Yates was awarded 20 points in each of seven categories, Mrs. Sibber and Mrs. Badley followed closely behind with six scores of 20 points each. Especially noteworthy regarding the centrality of women to the 18th century theater's success, in spite of the limitations of a dramaturgy usually regarded as lackluster, is that the three highest total scores went to Mrs. Pritchard at 188, Mrs. Yates at 173, Mrs. Sibber at 172, who were trailed by male actors, Mr. Yates, Mr. King, and Mr. Powell. In other words, when the relative merits of the thespians were set side by side in a dozen categories, several star actresses outranked all the men. The women appear then to have been not only superior actors, but more versatile in their performances. A female star could make more money from acting than many male thespians, and more than men who labored in other trades. Another intriguing set of grading scales published in the Theatrical Review for the 1757-58 season ranked tragedians and comedians separately. Although both tragic and comic players were measured according to their genius and judgment in the alphabetically arranged chart, tragedians were distinguished for their proper use of expression, action, and voice, and comedians assessed on the basis of vis comica, 
or comic talent and variety. In tragic tragedy, Garrick stood supreme, David Garrick, stood supreme with a total of 88 points, but Susanna Sibber ran a very close second with a tally of 82. Bowden, James Bowden, clearly believed that Garrick's fear of being upstaged and outacted was not due to flaws in the manuscript, but to his own failure of confidence in being perceived as superior to the female co-stars. Hester Thrale, who was quite a discriminating theater-goer, supplies a pertinent anecdote regarding Garrick's rivalry with a fellow actress. She says, I always thought Hannah Pritchard superior to Garrick. He felt her so in one scene of Hamlet, one of Macbeth, and one of the jealous wife, when all the spontaneous applause of the house ran to her. Applying the observation explicitly to Mrs. Sibber's talent, James Bowden speaks in the same vein when he says, the true secret of Mr. Garrick's coldness to three tragedies, Douglas, Cleone, and Orphan of China, was that in them the female interest predominated. Mrs. Sibber overwhelmed him. George Ann Bellamy, a star actress herself, agreed that Garrick, like an Eastern monarch, could not bear even a sister near the throne. Kitty Clive's total, 65 points, exceeded all of the men except Garrick, who scored 70 points in the comic uh, rankings. These figures shed considerable light on Garrick's jealousy of Clive, for she was presented by this calculation to be inching up as his nearest rival. The tallies in these tables and the fine distinctions made among them reflect intense rivalries among, ac among actors of both sexes in these kinds of published ratings. Most significantly, these calculations demonstrate the enormous popularity of 18th century actresses and their ability to compete for the audience's highest regard. Early actresses manipulated anecdotes circulating about their private lives into an imagined on-stage personality. Joseph Roach has termed this phenomenon public intimacy that served as a theatrical substitute for authentic knowledge about them, in part through their reiteration, reiteration of consistent character traits in plays, afterpieces, and epilogues. Actors create an illusion of availability, encouraging the audience's vicarious experience and weaving the spellbinding effect that their charismatic personalities exerted as part of the deep structure of emergent celebrity. Spectators became enchanted with theatrical persona in a way that had previously been reserved for monarchs and sacred personages. Roach takes, that, that is Joseph Roach, takes no special notice of women's introduction to the stage, although women dominate his examples of abnormally interesting per persons. Neither does he argue, as I do here, that celebrity flourished in large part because fascinating women gathered to themselves sexual powers exceeding those ascribed to men. Male actors possessed powerful stage magnetism, of course, Betterton, Garrick, and Sheridan notable among them, but the discourse surrounding actresses involved a different sexual politics, and women's compromised position in this regard fed the circulation of scandal. Gentlemen spectators regularly violated bans against fraternizing with actresses at stage's edge or in the green room until late in the century. To take only one example from many, in the Dublin Theater in 1742, a spectator moved by Peg Waffington's Cordelia nursing Garrick's leer in the final act, threw himself onto the stage in order to stroke her. Inserting women's bodies into public space thoroughly eroticized them in a way that male actors were often able to evade. This is Frances Abington in the a part of Miss Prue, and uh, Reynolds has been accused here of painting Prue as Mrs. Ab Abington rather than the reverse. Um, the chair back there it can be imagined as uh, indicating the separation between the precipice between the audience and the stage. Inserting women's bodies into public space thoroughly eroticized them in a way that male actors often were able to evade. The audience's imagined intimacy with actual women on stage increased the sexual charge. The anti-theatrical pamphlet the Playhouse Pocket Companion testifies to the legendary difference that the sex of the dramatic speaker was believed to have made. I quote, an obscene jest or a double entendre which would have lost half its poignancy out of the mouth of a young man or a boy in petticoats was highly relished when spoken by a beautiful woman. A female gay, loose and wanton represented by a beardless youth would have been a character not likely to be well received, but when filled by a young and handsome woman desiring and desirable herself, vice was rendered amiable, and she herself became the object of impure desires. 
The ability of star actresses to meld their actual persons with their stage characters freed them to escape being solely erotic objects and allowed them to become economic agents as they transformed their celebrity selves into commodities to be advertised and exchanged. Unlike the female author, who, according to Fran uh, Catherine Gallagher, acted as a nobody and represented a definitive lack of property, star actresses gained cultural authority because they took possession of their own persons. Jody Green has noted that for a woman to own anything at all, especially a book, creates a disturbance in the emergent norms that link originative agency with proprietorship as essential attributes of modern authorship. I share this interest in stressing the ownership of modern authorship to show that actresses such as Kitty Clive, whom I'm going to talk about in more detail, behaved in ways counter traditional femininity in insisting upon their right to financial gain and proprietorship over parts. Modernity is characterized by an individual's conscious creation of himself or herself, and 18th century celebrity actresses figured as spectacular examples of women capable of animating this potential as female subjects in the public arena and to make themselves celebrated properties. My interest then is in the performance, in performance as a practice of the self rather than reading as a practice of the self. The fictional nobodies that Gallagher found characteristic of the early novel became theatrical somebodies when they mounted the stage and as real women and as dramatic characters. Actresses trading on their acting reputations, which represented quite the opposite of the disembodied female author who often veiled her public identity, appearing as a nameless, anonymous being. Actresses, however, learned to overcome the challenges to the possibility of female self-representation and to contest, as well as to trade on, the label of whore that had plagued early women writers from Afro-Ben on. Thus, these celebrity actresses, consciously self-creating, heralding new possibilities for women, fashioned a coherent public identity that projected an accessible, layered interiority effect that combined public display with personal revelation. The united dramatic character and private self in a way we usually associate with fictional characters. Thus, the emergence of celebrity at the turn into the 18th century may be linked not only to the public-private split, but also to the first appearance of women on stage. Celebrity culture mobilizes abstract desire by embodying it within an animate object, which allows for deeper levels of attachment and identification than with inanimate commodities. That is, it humanizes desire. Combining social status with a new kind of value, these celebrity actresses might be considered powerful competitors, that is, rival queens, alongside and together with the more decorous version of the modern individual made familiar to us in the domestic novel. I want to turn now for the rest of the time available to me to a specific case study of a celebrity actress who literally owned herself and who turned that self into a theatrical property. Catherine Rafter Clive, 1711 to 85, the finest comedian and singer in the mid 18th century theater, exemplified the ability of star actresses to perform a characteristic personality on stage. Clive based her star power on her theatrical property as a guarantor of a, remark of a recognizable and marketable personhood. Clive understood that cultivating fame meant not only acting assigned roles superbly, but also keeping aspects of her personal life in public circulation and demanding fair remuneration for that charismatic, charismatic personality. Born to an Irish father and an English mother in 1711, Clive debuted on the stage a scant two years before Anne Oldfield died, thus inaugurating a second generation of actresses who differed from the earlier ones in that they could benefit from the mistakes of their talented predecessors and develop new strategies for becoming respected professionals. They could also serve as mentors to these younger actresses. Clive was, according to fellow actor-manager Tate Wilkinson, a mixture of combustibles. She was passionate, cross, vulgar, yet sensible, and a very generous woman, and as a comic actress of genuine worth. Indeed, indeed, he said, she was a diamond of the first water. The valiant Boadicea never hurled her spear with more furor than Clive, that Amazonian Thalestris of Drury Lane Theater, who pursued Garrick, that great general, whenever he offended her. Indeed, the whole green room dreaded her frowns. Clive's virago-like temper may have been not just a court personality quirk, but also her recognition of the historic strategies that thespian women needed in order to command cultural authority. If we take the actual performative moment into account, I'm suggesting, a talented actress could affect a simulated subjectivity that carried far beyond the surface codes typical of a particular genre. 
The most successful 18th century actresses recognized the importance of creating this interiority effect that allowed the drama to vie with other nascent 18th century forms which fostered individuality and intimacy, such as the epistolary novel, the periodical, and, the autobi and autobiographical writing, to which celebrity could attach itself and flourish. This simulation of interior depth and coherence blends the star actress's putative personality with the character's emotions and thoughts and may be constructed and exposed alongside them. The interiority effect that Clive and other actresses realized did not then necessarily correspond to an actual interior consciousness, but was rather a virtual and situational one bolstered by the circulation of celebrity gossip. Similarly, the worth of this marketable personhood of actress and character fluctuated as the value assigned by the marketplace did. These women on stage combined unprecedented social leverage with a new kind of worth to invent what I'm calling performative property in their public and private identities. This capacity to mix private and public evolved because of actresses' self-referential illusions. The interaction between actresses and their parts and the development of a reciprocal relationship between audience and stage, especially during the epilogues that were written for, for star actresses to deliver in their own person on the precipice at stage's edge. That precipice resonated with a precariously built up tension between the two worlds of stage and audience. The interplay between the real and fictional meant that spectators speculated about what portion of the inner consciousness of the actress might be shared with the character. It kept celebrity in play and people buying tickets. Not only ladies and gentlemen of quality and middling spectators idealized the actress, uh, but one of K Kitty Clive's li liveliest epilogues followed after Arthur Mur Murphy's the, the Apprentice. I'm going to start that again, sorry. One of Kitty Clive's liveliest epilogues followed after Arthur Murphy's the, the Apprentice. The epilogue, like the play, warns of the special perils awaiting apprentice women who haunted the theater in hopes of becoming celebrities themselves, of gaining an economic windfall and class mobility. Clive's epilogue specifically addresses female milliners. She begins by charging Arthur Murphy with professional jealousy over the success of her burlesque afterpiece, the rehearsal, which led him to exclude her from her play, from his play. His envy Clive conjectures conjectures is heightened because of her bold confidence in daring to produce a farce, and she appeals to the pit. She says, malice and envy to the last degree, and why? I wrote a farce as well as he. Subsequent lines insist on the significance of women apprentices, including especially milliners who aspire to popular tragic roles and deceive themselves into thinking they are tragic queens, like Erin Hill's Zara. A spouting junto of the female kind, there dwells a milliner in yonder row, well-dressed, full-voiced, and nobly built for show, who, when enraged, she scolds at Sue and Sarah, damned, damned dissembler, thinks she's more than Zara, Zara, who was the heroine of Aaron Hill's play. Demonstrating the greater sexual and social class dangers that actresses face, Kate Clive's epilogue warns that when female apprentices leave their shops for the stage, they will face greater consequences than for men. In this epilogue and throughout her career, Clive cultivated close collaboration with her audiences and patrons. She served as her own agent. She was propelled by her belief that as a subject who possessed rights, she had the prerogative to appropriate her own labor and to possess her own self. To transform her performative property like this epilogue into hard currency. This extended to her proprietary role to own certain, her proprietary right to own certain roles to invent idiosyncratic actor character parts for herself in the afterpieces she wrote, and to promote her, promote her own person as Anglo-Irish. Performative property was thus constituted through hard work and by stimulating social relationships with the audience. Clive's savvy recognition of ways that the forms of mobile property were changing, that is, shifts which paralleled the historical development of authorial copyright law, beginning with the 1710 Statute of Anne, that was the first copyright law when authors rather than printers were given the right to reproduce their work for profit and given a monopoly over it for a limited period, it allowed her to be responsive to an audience's changing modes of perception in an emergent market economy. 
The strategy also let the celebrated actress sustain her career over four decades and transform potential liabilities, including her Irish heritage, her coarse humor, her fiery temper, faulty education, fading beauty, diminishing powers into strengths that contributed to an ever-maturing formation of a recognizable but still protean identity. Clive, unlike so many of her fellow actresses, largely managed to escape innuendo about her sexual life and avoided conventional assumptions about actresses as prostitutes. Though Clive married barrister Cl George Clive of Hereford, they soon separated. They maintained amicable relations, but she was never to live with her husband again. Clive endured untoward advances from male admirers, but one of her memoirists paradoxically makes a fellow actress taking some liberties with her in the dressing room an occasion to buttress Clive's reputation for virtue because she withstood it. Clive thus heightened her marketability by aligning virtue and commerce at the very time when the larger culture was struggling with the incongruity of these linkages. The difficulty, of course, was for an actress to appear sufficiently distant from commercial transactions to command a reputation for virtue and to incorporate decorous femininity into her public image. Beginning at a mere 20 shillings per week, Clive quickly gained a substantial reputation and a high salary rising to 300 pounds for hard work. Known as The Clive, the article being added to the names of opera divas and thus anticipating The Siddons, she had extraordinary longevity on the stage for 41 of her 74 years. When her husband died without leaving her anything, Clive scoffed, poor Mr. Clive is gone and I think but he made a bad exit. He promised me all his goods and chattels and he's given me none. But thank God I'm quite happy and content and I don't feel the least malice to his memory. I have fortune enough to purchase everything I cannot do without. Clive posed a triple threat as a consummate actress, accomplished singer, and innovative playwright. By her own account, Clive was stage struck from age 12 when she used to tag after the celebrated Mr. Robert Wilkes whenever they saw him in the streets, an actor, and gape at him as a wonder. One unlikely though much repeated version of Clive's discovery recounts how her lilting singing voice attracted the attention of the Beefsteak Club that met opposite in the Bell Tavern. She, uh, she allegedly happily scrubbed the porch steps of her lodging singing on the while. This story resonates with Clive's most popular roles as a singing chambermaid on stage and testifies to the extraordinary sweetness of her voice. The most popular female comic singer of her time, only Italian opera singers were thought to rival her. The newspapers remarked, Miss Rafter is without a superiority if we accept the foremost voices in the Italian operas. We have a picture here of Clive with, with her music. Clive successfully played the singing shepherdess Phyllida in Sibber's Love in a Riddle, but her greatest triumph came as the cobbler's wife, Nell, rising to the lady of the manor in Devil, The Devil to Pay. This character, established her reputation, doubled her salary, and guaranteed that the farce would become a fixture of the repertory for the rest of her career. Part of what may have driven Clive's ambition and sense of entitlement was her Irish father's obligatory forfeiture of an estate because of his loyalty to the Stuarts, loyalty to the Stuarts, to which he had been heir. Despite her origins, Clive's onstage performance of social class was remarkably labile. Known in her early career for acting chambermaids, she often mimicked the airs of her onstage mistress while outwitting her. She was especially well known for her parts as would-be fine ladies who imitated but could not fully inhabit the gentility to which she was rumored to be entitled. Clive played on this doubleness by alternating between chambermaid and fine lady to thoroughly intermix them in the persona the audience came to identify as constituting the real Clive. Newfound celebrity was unsettling because it established through star power an intangible but negotiable property. Property was both an extension and a prerequisite of personality, J.G.A. Pocock declared in his classic formulation of 18th century economic change. Property afforded a citizen the autonomy necessary for him to develop virtue or goodness as an actor within the political, social, and natural realm of order. Actor used in this way describes an agent of action rather than a dramatic player, of course, but the definition nevertheless points to the centrality of the theater in grappling with these cultural issues. Women were classified as unable to possess property in themselves, as Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England made clear, and they were legally required to subsume themselves and their right to property upon marriage within their husband's identity. Thus, actresses who legitimately possessed property in their own persons functioned in a new realm of uncharted territory. If, 
As Stephen McPherson wrote in his study of the individual, the individual is free in as much as he is proprietor of his person and his capacities, then star actresses seeking to make a property of their characteristic personalities became candidates for status as subjects under the law through self-commodification. The kind of personhood they created was an enabling fiction of coherence and effective performance, but it also took on an economic reality in the marketplace as a tradable commodity. As Carol Pateman brilliantly explained in The Sexual Contract, Locke implicitly limited the possession of oneself to the male sex. Locke wrote, every man has a property in his own person, and a person can only claim an object as property insofar as he intermingles it with labor, and thereby fix a property within it. Just as real property gave way to the ephemeral nature of credit in the 18th century, Clive's relationship to her own celebrity evolved as it gained greater worth. Once property was seen to have a symbolic value expressed in coin or in credit, as Pocock argued, the foundations of personality themselves appeared imaginary, or at best consensual. The individual could exist, even in his own sight, only at the fluctuating value imposed upon him by his fellows. Coming into possession of herself, Clive, along with other actresses, adopted this definition as her own. For Locke, the self was determined not by its substance, but by its identity, with a consciousness that appropriates self to itself. The self is one and the same, the same to itself, because it owns itself and is its own self, as Etienne Balabar points out in analyzing the linguistic and philosophical relationship between Locke's use of self and own. Clive created a persona with an identical name, that is Clive, and performed by herself same person. She jockeyed what might be termed the uneasy relationship of identity and difference as she both identified with what she had named by appearing in her own person and disowned it by claiming not to be herself. Having been a victim of salary price fixing, Clive wrote a sixpenny pamphlet to defend herself. And you have a, a passage from this which I'm not going to read, but you can see uh, what I'm arguing about here in terms of custom. In the case of Mrs. Clive in 1744, she referred to the customs of the theater with respect to property relations and drew on a long-standing English reliance on common law. She also importantly attacked the legitimacy of patriarchal power and its sovereign authority. Common law derived, of course, from precedent rather than statute and rested on verbal transmission. It was relative, informal, and arbitrary, and it began to assume a rather more permanent shape as local practices became accepted as authoritative. What Clive sought throughout her career was fair and consistent application of the existing body of practices relating to acting. To firmly establish these practices was especially critical, particularly in her case, because as a wife separated from her husband, her property was by law subsumed under his, but also to the well-being of other vulnerable women players. This reliance on common law is particularly evident in the treatise that forcefully exerted, asserted Clive's right to own her own labor and by virtue of that labor to own herself as a subject with rights. In Clive's case, women's property did not rest in its traditional location in the domestic setting, and the case of Mrs. Clive passionately argues the case in the court of public opinion. Women's legal status regarding property during the Restoration 18th century moved through several stages. Separate maintenance developed as a viable, somewhat revolutionary alternative for women when they sought to enter into contracts of their own. Clive anticipated this move, which didn't really occur until the 1770s, and she's writing in the 1740s, to assert the right of a femme sole, a single woman independently able to make contracts in her own name for all actresses, regardless of their marital status. In short, Kitty Clive claimed that an 18th century actress, though dispossessed of ordinary property because she was a woman, could command, in addition to a substantial earned salary and gratuities, a new kind of property located in her identity that I'm calling performative property, which we might locate somewhere between real property and paper credit. Though the practice of respecting an actor's right to a role was generally followed, in fact, there were celebrated infringements of this tradition, and actresses were more vulnerable to its abuse than actors, and less likely to convince managers of their right to a dramatic property. The potential for difficulty was greatest, when an actress returned to the stage after a leave of absence, such as pregnancy or illness, or when her aging face and body spurred another actress in the company to appropriate her roles. Unlike marriage in which their legal existence was suspended or sublimated to that of the husband, women were unquestionably placed at a disadvantage regarding both wages and, uh, and inheritance. 
No amount of equal inheritance could counteract the law of coverture and its legal fiction that a husband and wife were one person, the husband, and therefore that property was his. Performative property, differing from real or mobile property, is embodied within one's person. It cannot be transferred without permission. It avoids the self-alienation intrinsic to contractual prostitution. In sum, inherent within the actress, Clive maintained was her right to act a given role in perpetuity and to claim that role as hers for lucrative benefit performances. One might argue then that performative property was among the very first properties, both intellectual and embodied, that a woman could possess in her own name that depended upon her personal identity rather than her husband or her family. An upstart woman from the least privileged classes could thus rival the elevated standing that the aristocracy possessed because of their claim to land, and she could even exceed the economic and social mobility that accruing movable property had made newly accessible to the trade and merchant classes. Performative property was located in possessing a role of one's own and yet also becoming a property that was abstracted from the real in that its actuation was realized in a unique performance that could never be exactly replicated. Clive fought throughout her career for her right to own parts, epilogues, and a celebrated identity. In my concluding section, I want to turn very briefly to a specific example of Clive's ingenuity in manipulating onstage and offstage aspects of her Irish-English identity. Her performative properties included short plays or afterpieces that she herself wrote for the stage. This itself was fairly unusual, combining farce with humorous comedy. Most importantly, she wrote feminist parody in the rehearsal, or bays in petticoats, as well as every woman in her humor and the faithful Irish woman. Like other celebrated uh, 18th century actresses, Clive kept a distinguishing role in epilogues, creating a character quite as definite as those which she represented in the play itself. And authors wrote their epilogues to suit the speaker. Many of the epilogues allude to her writing talent and prod her toward producing her own original theater pieces. For example, Garrick's epilogue, written for the 19th March 1751 performance of Clyde's rehearsal, is a rousing call to action on behalf of women writers. And you have it on your sheet. But pray, sirs, why must we not write nor think? Have we not heads and hands and pen and ink? Can you boast more? that are so wondrous wise? Have women then no weapons but their eyes? Were we like you to let our genius loose, we'd top your wit and match you for abuse. The richness of the epilogue and performance, spoken by Clive as the self-reflexive character, Mrs. Hazard, would have arisen, and Hazard is a reference to her love of gambling, her love of risk, would have risen from its enfolded layers of allusion to actress, playwright, role, and private person, thus extending the joke of the play through metadramatic references. Though one might interpret the feminism of the epilogue as contained by its misogyny, the force of the epilogue is at least as much a grudging recognition that Clive's comic talent truly rivaled Garrick's. Her delivery of the lines along with appropriate gestures may have reinforced the way her arguments for women's equality constitutes part of her ongoing persona. The epilogue, like others she delivered, asserts women's rights and suggests that women might have a property right in their own critical and aesthetic judgments. Garrick's avoidance of a struggle for victory with Clive, according to Thomas Davies, could be attributed to his dread of her getting the better of him, whose salary and benefits often rivaled his. Clive's development of performative property in her own afterpieces contested British national identity and called attention to her Irish roots. Especially during the 1760s, which is when she was writing these, London audiences welcomed plays by Irish playwrights, including Isaac Bickerstaff, Arthur Murphy, Hugh Kelly, Richard Cumberland, Olive Goldsmith. Clive capitalized on this appetite for Irish fear. The long-reigning assumption has been that the 18th century Irish theaters in Smock Alley and Anger Street were largely colonial institutions that merely fostered English loyalties. Though this view has been vigorously contested to reveal a native Irish counter-theater manifested especially in epilogues, and both the London and Dublin stages were sometimes the site of ferment stirred by Irish actors and playwrights. Clive's afterpieces embodied this contestatory spirit in properties she wrote solely for herself to play, parts which called attention to personal characteristics well known in print culture, her singing talent, family, Irish temper, and love of card playing. In the characters Clive created for Irish women on stage and on the page, she counters common expectations that Ireland was merely a rural backwater, a landscape populated by harmless comic Gaelic peasants, where the English visitor could experience a welcome release from the pressures of modernity. 
While the typical Irish working class man was usually portrayed, of course, as a blustering, ignorant buffoon and the Irish made as a lusty local, in Clive's dramatic pieces, Ireland became less a bog swarming with primitive rustics than a rich cultural resource for women to draw upon. At some level, Clive also recognized that she was playing on English fears of what intermarriage between individuals and metaphorically a union between the two countries might bring. And she masked any potentially serious political and social satire with self-deprecating humor. Her farce, revised into the faithful Irish woman, is among the few Irish plays on Irish subjects written during this period, and among a few, very few composed by women of Irish heritage. The farce comically resists mid-18th century norms of appropriate feminine behavior to repeat a familiar theme of conflict between a witty woman's real desires, whether serious or trivial, and her social and domestic obligations. The precursor to the faithful Irish woman focuses on Lady Jenkins, an earlier sketch she wrote, which is a new, and she is Lady Jenkins, a part that Clive played, is a new minted lady of quality who insists on being addressed as your ladyship rather than madam, and who shares Clive's passion for card playing. She is representative of a new English aristocracy, uneasy about its identity, that may have been familiar to Clive because of her acquaintance with the Anglo-Irish ascendant elite. The play stresses her Irish ethnicity and identifies with a growing Irish patriotism. In The Faithful Irish Woman, Clive switched roles to play the lead character, Mrs. O'Connor, the good-natured cousin of the gambling would-be fine lady that I've just mentioned. The central character displays manners that, in spite of being Irish, mark her as possessing more humane instincts than her English cousin. Showing considerable feistiness and not a few peculiarities, the uncouth, snuff-sniffing Irish woman tentatively accompanies Lady Jenkins to her late-night rambles, only to mock her. Clive, that is, Mrs. O'Connor, displays enviable money management skills and values, and she urges her reprobate English cousin to renounce her addictions. In this clever bit of performative property, Clive, Mrs. O'Connor, ironically instructs the English to improve their speech and defends the Irish-English language, as she calls it, rather than Anglo-Irish, as the proper language of upper classes in both countries and superior to an Irish-English identity. Clive, like her character O'Connor, intimately recognizes that a person's social standing could be significantly transformed through reforming their enunciation or regional dialect. Clive, Mrs. O'Connor, boldly insinuates that Irish takes precedence over English and that the English have much to learn from their neighbors. The genteel Irish, Mrs. O'Connor, protests speak without a brogue, though vulgar people in both countries garble the language into nonsensical jargon. She says, but I'll tell you, if I was not worth a shilling in the world, I would bet you 500 pounds that we speak truer English in the castle of Dublin than you do. On the London stage, motley dialects were spoken, satirized, and regularized. The faithful Irish woman then suggests that as an actress, Clive herself, though an Irish patriot, had erased any sign of an Irish inflection, unlike some of her Irish actors, fellow Irish actors. Speaking as an actress and character, she recounts a joke at the expense of the English. She says, some years ago, we invited an English actress to come over to us. So one day she was dining at a person of quality's house, and there was no less a person there than my Lord Chancellor. And so he was complimenting her and said he had never heard any lady upon the stage speak the English so well. Well, then a gentleman in company replied, faith, my Lord, and there was no great wonder at that, that she should speak English well her grandfather was an Irishman. If the English actress is meant to be Clive, then the joke clearly turns Irish, Irishness into an asset and champions Clive, the actress, and the character as a perfect blend of the two countries. Writing and acting her own performative property allowed audiences to imagine her interiority as diplomatically encompassing sympathy for both. Clive resolved cultural difference then through the romance of an Irish woman and an English man instead of the usual verse pattern. She stands on her head, its head, sorry, she stands on its head, the conventional plot of a money-grubbing Irishman marrying an English woman. Like Clive, Mrs. O'Connor ascends to become part of the Anglo-Irish or English-Irish elite. In the second act of The Faithful Irish Woman, Mrs. O'Connor receives word that her fiancé, Truman, an English sea captain, and her father was uh, an uh, Irish sea captain, abruptly lost his fortune when her ship sank. Mrs. O'Connor generously offers to share her substantial fortune with him, and he seems not at all emasculated by the financial arrangement. Playing on the popularity of her singing role as Polly in Gay's Beggar's Opera, 
and reminding the audience of the bridge between theatrical representation and her person, Clive sings, thus safe on shore, I ask no more. My all is in my possession, possession. My all is in my possession. In the final act, Clive's character embodies a loyal Irish woman in possession of herself and her property, who is willing to support both her newly bankrupt fiance, Truman, and herself with money made from selling property inherited from an Irish uncle. As I indicated earlier, Clive had given her estranged English husband a steady allowance from her earnings, yet upon his death, he left her nothing. Thus, Ireland here is personified as a wealthy, propertied, independent woman, a woman closely resembling Clive, who generously assumes the debts of a suddenly destitute Englishman to share his identity in wedded bliss, thus hinting at England's extraction of Ireland's cultural and economic resources. Clive's comic female heroines, like the actress herself, are the antithesis of distressed femininity or anguished maternity. They are savvied, moneyed, high-spirited women with hearts of gold who speak Irish English with true wit, eschew domestic duties, and generally defend Ireland and its civilized culture, the very type of the celebrated actresses I've been discussing. Rather than an Irish adventurer voraciously seeking a wealthy English wife, Clive's Englishman hopes to endow an Irish woman who ironically ends up supporting him. Traumatized by hailing from a country with a history of being dispossessed of one's land, Mrs. O'Connor's Irish-English identity is bolstered by becoming a landowner. She says, I have a secret to tell you. I've got 2,000 pounds in good firm land that the sea can't wash away. Just as Clive claimed a different sort of theatrical property in the parts she established as her own, her character reclaims the real property from which many Irish had been dispossessed. In promoting this identity, Clive made available a social space and a theatrical space which she could inhabit as a dislocated Irish woman who was not anyone's possession, but who instead took possession of properties in her dramatic roles. When Garrick asked Clive how much she was worth, she reportedly replied, as much as yourself. In sum, Clive's achievements rivaled those of any actress and many actors to this point in theater history. She competed with Garrick in performance, as a businesswoman, as a playwright, and most of all, as a celebrity who claimed her right to performative properties, including those of a would-be fine lady, a chambermaid, an Irish-English woman, and a spokeswoman for women's rights. She defended a craft that she believed deserved to command rights, privileges, respect, and commercial reward. The interiority effect she so carefully calculated, one critical to the formation of an ascendant middle class, is cannily deployed in the marketplace to produce an effect of coherence and depth as a means of creating value in her own person. In sum, Kitty Clive skillfully negotiated reigning assumptions regarding women's identity and British identity, as well as the relationships among virtue, property, and commerce. In inventing celebrity during what we might dare to call the age of the actress. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for a marvelous lecture. Um, we have time for a few questions. Um, the acoustics in this room are a bit difficult. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. Professor Nussbaum will call on you, and I will run over and give you the mic. Hold it right in front of your mouth. I noticed in some of the bills that you showed, you know, the, where they rated the actors and actresses, that the uh, women don't, they use just Mrs. or Ms. They don't use their first names, and the men don't either. Was there a, was that convention or deliberate? Yes, that was a convention, and even in the dramatist personae, they would have been listed very frequently as Mrs. rather, or Miss, rather than with their first name. Yes. Uh, no, there would be Mr. and the dramatist persona, but on, uh, in this, there is obviously no Mr. Yeah. Sometimes with first name as well. Um, thanks, Felicity. That was wonderful. Um, I wanted to ask a bit about the question of um, interior, the interiority effect um, and its relation to what you call performative property. It seems to me that there's a kind of interesting tension between the two. Um, that on the one hand, 
performativity taking taking on a role is suggests something that is not interior but rather kind of flat um, or exterior in a kind of in a potentially very interesting way um, and that um, as a mode of even of um, as a mode of property that um, performative property is owning something that is not your personal identity, it's owning an identity of somebody else, a fictional character. Um, so I'm wondering if there isn't some sort of perhaps interesting tension between the kind of exterior fictional flatness on the one hand and the notional claim to depth and interiority and authenticity and et cetera on the other. Right. Um, well, that's a very interesting question. And I do think that there is a constant tension between the interiority effect and the performative property. But I would question whether the performative property, that very idea of performative property, is really quite so flat. Um, uh, I mean, it seems to me that if you have a dramatic character, you have someone who can be rounded out, as it were. <laughs> And that uh, one of the things which Kitty Clive is doing, and any number of other actresses are doing, is trying to draw in as much as possible her personal life with that dramatic character in order to make it, because it is embodied, it's actually embodied, it's, you know, it's got a real physical material reality to it. Um, that, I think, is what makes it resist being flat, because it is real beautiful women on the stage as opposed to um, reading about a character who might seem flatter, ironically, on the page, you know, on a, on a written page. So um, I, I also want to really stress that I think of that interiority effect as being just that, an effect that it is a creation as opposed to the real consciousness or the real person. Uh, that it is that enabling fiction that makes it possible to have that performative property. So I do agree they are in tension, but I think it's that very tension that is just so interesting to people, you know, from um, Britney Spears to Angelina Jolie to um, Kitty Clive. So I've got Bliss and then Ramon. Uh, I thought the Irish quest was <laughs> fascinating. Can you, can you generalize at all? I mean, I wonder whether it's possible to generalize at all about uh, uh, the Irish backgrounds of the Irish actresses. That's one thing. And the second uh, self-interested question, I guess, is uh, is there any evidence of Swift in the background? Um, well, Swift, yeah, Swift in the background in terms as, of. As a creator. Right. Um, the first question about the Irish actors and actresses, um, they, it's astounding really, and there's a book to be written, I hope somebody's doing it, on um, the way in which there is cross-traffic between Ireland and England at this time. It's really quite astounding. Dublin serves in large part as a kind of practice place, but also a place where if you um, are no longer in favor in London. You can go off to Dublin, work there for a while, then you can eventually work your way back to London. Um, there are any number, as I listed a few of the Irish uh, playwrights, it's really quite astounding. The it, and of course, it's not, it's not surprising because it was a way for the Irish also to rise, you know, to, to have some class mobility. Um, in terms of generalizing about the actresses, well, there, there are any number of them who are Irish, including um, Peg Woffington, I've named, I've listed her on your, uh, on your handout sheet. Um, uh, are you thinking in terms of, um, say, religion or in terms of political uh, affiliation? Any, any, anything that might yeah, stand I, out. I think, yeah. I think that the, they're not. They are really each quite different from each other in the uses that they make of their Irishness. Some trying to completely rid themselves of any reference to the Irishness and others trading on it, as in the case of Kitty Clive. But she really waited to do that until the 1760s when she noticed that, hmm, I, if I become more Irish and increase that as part of my person uh, on the stage, then I will be able to make more money, especially because at that point she's getting older and she doesn't sing as well. 
And she, and she also, you know, is not that beautiful young woman that was the ingenue or the coquette in these chambermaid singing parts. Um, in terms of Swift, he, uh, he, there, there are no specific references at all that I can think of, um, but his ladies' dressing room and his relationship to Pope are mentioned in several later plays that are that Francis Abington, who was the one who was uh, represented as Miss Prue, acted in. And there's a, a very interesting dressing room scene where she does, in fact, re relate quite specifically to him. And um, Francis Abington was also Irish, um, and uh, though she spent over all of her life, really, in England. Also, I want to thank you for a wonderful performance you. that you uh, offered us. And um, um, I also was taken by your notion of performative property, mm -hmm. and especially the way in which you describe it, you know, obviously um, um, basing it on Locke. Um, but thinking about that, thinking about the, the basis of Locke and property, um, because property only becomes property as we in intermingle something with labor, isn't from that position all uh, all property by definition performative. So what would you know? In other words, what hmm. so what would differentiate this particular kind of performance? Then is my first the first part of my question, and secondly, um, that is a peculiarly English construction yes. of property and the proper and what is prop. And there are competing notions in the 18th century, obviously, of what constitutes property. Uh, they're developing dramatically on the continent. And whether a similar kind of notion of uh, performativity, of uh, the construction of a woman's self, would apply on the continent. Well, these, um, these are very good questions. I can't really respond. I, I can't really give you a full answer to whether women, in fact, on the continent because I don't know enough. And I haven't studied sufficiently French and Italian women especially because I think that's where it would be most found, um, uh, were able to make of themselves performative properties. Um, it seems to me that it might very well have to be, be especially English um, in its uh, formation. Um, of course, there were Italian women who were singing the opera, and they would have had um, um, very lucrative careers, both in Italy and when they came to England. Um, they, uh, and some of the women did double uh, in both opera and light opera, especially, and, um, and on the English stage. Um, so my guess is that it would probably be more likely, and some of you may know more about this than I do, but it'd be more likely that it would be confined to England um, with its language of rights and its language of liberty and, and the rights of, of, of uh, women's uh, freedom, especially in the 1770s and 80s and, uh, and into the 90s with Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, I think um, the, it, there's also a longer history of women on the stage in France and Spain and in Italy than there is in England. England came to it belatedly. And uh, just why that is has been the subject of you know, many discussions. But uh, the one that I find most convincing is that it was an economic decision, you know, that um, once Charles II came back to England uh, at, at the Restoration and decided that he would have women on the stage, it was because he wanted to revive the theaters after the Commonwealth, uh, uh, after the Interregnum, and there had been no theaters. Uh, and so how do you get people back into the theaters? Well, you put, as Charlie Silver says, real beautiful women on that stage, and then you're going to be able to get not only the men to come, but the women as well. And that was what was really so extraordinary, that it was a public space for both men and women to be. I think we have time for one final question. Do we have a final question? Um, in the epilogue to the rehearsal that you've provided for us here, um, she makes some very strong claims um, about um, ladies in this age. Um, in this age so happy and refined, what is there not performed by womankind? Uh, from joy to joy, from drum to drum they roam, and nothing now is unenjoyed but home. Um, what are your readings of this? Is this the character? Is this a boast? Is this Mrs. Clive? Is this a plea for women in general? <laughs> yeah, that's a wonderful question, too. Um, I think that epilogues were especially 
available for these actresses to turn them to multiple purposes at once. So that with a gesture, a nod, uh, a wink at the audience, um, the epilogue was also something which was uh, produced, uh, was, was spoken uh, on the stage's edge and you know out toward the audience. Um, so I think that one could have both interpretations at once. But I think it was a boast for, for Kitty Clive based on the fact that um, she writes in her own afterpieces about women who take great delight in not doing what women have to do and, uh, and neglecting their ordinary responsibilities and not feeling the least bit of guilt about it. Um, and of course, she didn't really have a domestic space, though eventually Horace Walpole did give her her own little estate uh, called Cliveden uh, at Twickenham, uh, right at Strawberry Hill. All right, let me remind you that you're all invited to a reception out in the foyer after this, and let me thank once again Felicity Newsbaum for this wonderful lecture. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.